actually we're live. It's a secret. <laughs> we are live. We Every are time. Whenever, Whenever you turn you this are on. There, we are right We're just waiting for you. Live. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by whether or not Christmas is canceled. So I, this is going to air after Christmas, right? But I just want to know, with Omicron coming, Chris, is, is Christmas canceled this year? Well, I don't know. I th- as long as Santa's had all his, his shots and his booster, we're good to go, right? We're good to go? Yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah, he, he'll need to get a visa. A visa? Does Santa need to get a PCR test on the 24th? No later? <laughs> right. I mean, it's got to be 72 hours before. Right. And I, I just wonder, you know, do does COVID infect reindeer? Yes, absolutely. Because we know that know that COVID affects like the leopards in the zoo and right. kitty cats mm-hmm. and right. occasionally dogs, but not so much. But can they, I mean, can they take, how do you get the swab from a reindeer? Uh, carefully. I would think. <laughs> Not looking. (laughs) Okay, good point. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. Did I get that right, Chris? Uh, uh, Yes, the departments. Yes, very good. From the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Singularly here, yes. Singularly here, and I am once again joined by Dr. Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Nice to be here. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Also, a reminder, I don't think I said this last time, Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast sites. We we need another rating. Rating. We need another, uh, not a rating, another uh, review. A review. Yeah. Because another five star review, you mean? Well, obviously. Okay. Now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to talk about a study on livable residential space and hypertension. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about what we learned from the 2001 anthrax attacks. In anthrax. the United States, and yeah, anthrax and hyper, hyper, and space, and I feel like I'm getting at uh, it's the end of the year metal bands <laughs> or video <laughs> games. I don't Just know which. The lead poisoning. Anyway, whatever we learned from the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States that is useful in COVID times. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that made us laugh out loud or just baffled the mind. So, segment one, we want to talk about an article that looked at the impact of livable space on hypertension. It was published in PLOS Medicine, and it was entitled Livable Residential Space, Residential Density, and Hypertension in Hong Kong, a population-based cohort study by first author Chinmoy Sarkarl of the Healthy High Density Cities Lab in the University of Hong Kong in the People's Republic of China. So once again, this was one that we picked because we were interested in, so there are no headlines on this. So Jess, can you talk us through this one? I can. So this was an interesting and long paper. Long. <laughs> really long. <laughs> really long. I think if, hitting if, the... If we on and on and on. <laughs> if we really knew how long it was, would 22 we have picked pages it? long. It was would a long we have picked it? I don't know. And this is, you know, Plus is, a, is an online only journal, mm. so the articles can be... Long. Longer. Long. Uh, yes. And we're getting a little deep into the pandemic for a 22 pager, but it's an interesting paper. Um, I appreciated reading it. I think so. So these investigators had three core research questions, some of which are particularly interesting to us, I think, right now, you know, given our experience in the last year and a half or so with COVID. So all of their questions are focused on different levels of exposure to population density and crowding in housing and in your neighborhood. Neighborhood. 
their first research question was, does residential space, looking at the amount of living space in your home, which is a metric of crowding, affect hypertension risk? So this is they are looking at the microenvironment, a measure of microenvironment density within your home. And they're kind of second, you know, they're kind of second level research question. They looked at whether housing density defined in two different ways, the first way being residential unit per building block, so kind of the number of apartments on a block or the size and density of those apartment buildings, which they termed meso-level housing density. Does that affect hypertension risk? And likewise, does residential density, which was blocks per neighborhood, so they defined that as macro-level density, affect hypertension risk? So these were three different ways of looking at the exposure of crowding and population density on an individual level and the relationship between those three different exposures and hypertension, which is obviously a really important public health endpoint because it predisposes people to all-cause mortality and to all kinds of cardiovascular disease and in general is something to avoid and reduce if we can. So they had a couple of core hypotheses. First, that living in close quarters with your loved ones may involve <laughs> a good deal of stress and therefore uh, increase your hypertension risk. I and mean, that, not, yeah. not us, <laughs> but other people. Right. You know. And so and so that was one where I thought we all could kind of relate to their hypothesis, given our experiences in quarantine. And then they were looking kind of more along this kind of classic environmental health side of looking at living in dense residential neighborhoods, which may be correlated with greater walkability or greater use of public transit. And they were hypothesizing that people who lived in more dense neighborhoods might have a reduced risk of hypertension. And that's kind of an extension of research that we've seen, like when you look at people like walkability of people who live in New York City, for example. People who live in cities tend to walk more than people who don't live in cities. So the way they looked at these questions, they used the family cohort study in Hong Kong. And so this is a research group based in Hong Kong. The family cohort is a territory-wide population cohort of physical, mental, and social well-being among people who live in Hong Kong. The baseline recruitment was approximately 46,000 participants from more than 20,000 households, which represented just under 1% of Hong Kong's total population. And the study took place between 2009 and 2011. So we're going back a little ways here. And so they used three parallel study designs. This is where we're getting into some of the all the, the density of pages in this in this document. Lots. They it rose my blood pressure reading this. <laughs> Just to read it, they, they used three parallel study designs. First, they took participants at baseline, baseline enrollment, and they looked cross-sectionally at their housing characteristics, their, the characteristics of their block and the characteristics of their neighborhood, and prevalent hypertension at baseline. And they also looked at blood pressure measures. They also looked longitudinally over a wave of follow-up. So kind of starting at their baseline measurement in 2009, and then there was a round of follow-up that was conducted in 2011, and they looked at incident hypertension as a reflective of your exposure to crowding at baseline. And the third study design is they used propensity scores to match on the basis of all kinds of characteristics to look at a group of people who moved to a smaller residence during the study period to see if that move to a smaller residence affected their hypertension risk under the hypothesis that it increased their risk of hypertension. 
so what they developed, which was, was very interesting and nice, was a geospatial database of housing and neighborhood residential characteristics. So their first, their first task as researchers was to find all of this information. And so they created, they called it the Hong Kong Housing Environmental Database by geocoding residential address and integrating those geocoded address data with data on neighborhood characteristics from all sorts of different sources, from real estate sources, from government sources on different structures and their density and population data. So in terms of their findings from the cross-sectional analysis, they used the, the metric of the interquartile range as their kind of reference point. So at baseline, each interquartile range increment increase in livable floor area in your housing unit was associated with lower blood pressure and prevalent hypertension with a 4% reduction in the odds of hypertension associated with one interquartile range increase in your living area. In the longitudinal analysis, they found found a 9% lower odds of incident hypertension associated with a one unit interquartile range increase in your living area. Okay, which is which is concordant with their original hypothesis that if you have more space, that's associated with a lower risk of hypertension. And that kind of came across both their cross-sectional and their longitudinal analysis. At their first kind of block level, an interquartile increase in residential units per building block, so maybe like number of apartments in your apartment building, was associated with higher blood pressure and higher risk of, of hypertension, both in their cross-sectional study and also in their longitudinal study, although yeah. there are a effect size for the incident hypertension was smaller, was a 3% increase in odds of incident hypertension across the study period. And at the neighborhood level, higher housing density was associated with a 7% lower odds of hypertension. And the longitudinal study also saw a direction in the same effect, but it was, it was lesser. It was a, a 2% reduction in the odds of hypertension. Interestingly, in their propensity-matched analysis, participants who moved from a bigger apartment to a smaller apartment had 60% elevated odds of incident hypertension during the study period after the move compared to propensity score-matched participants who did not move during the study period. And they, the, the authors noted in sensitivity analysis that there were stronger associations between smaller residential space and higher blood pressure in women and in those living in public housing. A meaty study. They did a lot. 22 pages. That was a good summary. Thank you. <laughs> that, I tried. I tried. Or a tofu study. <laughs> that, there, there is a lot going on there. Chris, I want to know what you thought of this study, but before you tell me, I want you to explain to the listeners what a one-unit increase in <laughs> interquartile range means. <laughs> uh, so if you go to a population with a distribution of their blood pressures and you chop that into 25% increments into quartiles, it would be what is the, the, the slope or the odds of going from one quartile to the next quartile. But the problem is that those quartiles are probably not shaped in a symmetrical way. There's going to be some sort of... So this, this is a point that I think you brought up many times before when we were talking about deciles or quartiles. Yeah is that, that the, the, the interpretation of that can be very woolly. It's our, the, the cutoffs are arbitrary. Yeah. But, but wait, but can we just, is that, Jess, is that what you interpreted, a one-unit increase in the, is, I mean, is Like it, going from quartile one to quartile two or two to three or three to four? The interquartile range is the, is the 25th, 25th percentile, the 75th percentile. So what's percentile? a one-unit increase in the interquartile range? Not, not Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that can't be right. That doesn't right. mean, they pr presumably meant quartiles. Did, they must have. I assume that they, they meant quartiles. I don't know. They're no, going no, from they're, quartile one to quartile two. No, no. I don't think so. They're going for an interquartile range increment 
in living floor area. I have what so does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Is that is that in if you were to say like okay on the basis of I want to buy an apartment on the basis of this of this finding what size of an apartment I'm do gonna, I need I to prevent even, hypertension? I need one that needs to fifty interquartile range the, square I'm units. I'm glad you phrased it that way because it kind of gets to the crux of do we believe this? But I still don't know what it means. What's a one well, unit. I guess it means that going from instead of going for the twenty fifth to the seventy fifth percentile, you're going for the seventy fifth percentile to one hundred twenty fifth percentile. Obviously, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? I don't know. I think so. They they had a you know a, they had a range of this is like floor area in their apartment, right? So this was your square footage in your apartment, yep. and they did summary statistics on those on the on the you know kind of square. It is forty thousand people on the size of their apartment, right? Yeah. And then they calculated the intercourse range yeah. on those measurements. So the 25th percentile to, to the, the 75th, 75th percentile. percentile. That's the range. That's the range. And say it's 400 square feet, right? And so they were saying, I don't, that, that was my understanding. Oh, that they so were to go saying, from 400 square feet, which is the, the width of the interquartile range to 400 to 401? No, I think each interquartile range increment. So if the interquartile range is, was 200 square feet, that yeah. was the unit of measurement that they were using oh, oh, oh. to say like a 200 square foot increase was associated with a 9% reduction in wow. hypertension. That was my understanding. But doesn't that at least. seem like you'd get outside the range very quickly if you went 200 units, which is... 50% of the... I think so, but that's why they only presented it as a one unit change. Right, because because you can't go to zero. You can't go to zero, and like you can't, you can't. I mean, I'm sure there's some people uh -huh. with really huge apartments. Okay, so and if you went from a, 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 right, okay, all right. But the point, I think, the point here is this is this, it's not totally clear. It's not very to translatable, us. right? It's exactly what it's they not say. Very it's a funny concept. It's a funny right. concept. Right. Anyway, Chris, uh, and what it could it, be what, a huge a huge number. It, so it's like, are you going from like the penthouse Trump Tower down to a shoebox on in Soho? Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. I don't know, Chris. What? What? Okay. Uh, other than uh, this? The, uh, well, okay. Which I, I had I had a couple of reactions. One is I, 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 my initial inclination was to say I think I believe this, and I decided I didn't believe it. And then I think I'm not sure if I believe it. And then I was thinking even if I believe it, it doesn't matter. And I, I know I kind of went all over the map on this one. Wow, that's a. So I mean, what, you know, okay. Starting with not, no particular order, like the, the does this matter one? Sure. So they're talking about. We found that, I'm just quoting here from the paper, we found that each interquartile range increment... Which we don't know what that which is. Which we don't know what it means. In livable floor area, was associated with lower diastolic blood pressure, beta, minus 0.27 millimeters of mercury. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm a clinician, and so I actually think about millimeters of mercury when I'm going puff, puff, puff with my sphygmometer and measuring patient's blood pressure. Puff, puff, and puff. I, I, I can tell you that that system for measuring blood pressure cannot get you down to that level of precision. That, that you know, anything less than like say five millimeters, we can't detect on a blood pressure monitor. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible. And also the blood pressure goes up and down constantly. So it's like every time the patient takes a breath, their blood pressure is wandering. And so it's very hard to get a precision. So when we're thinking about blood pressure management, you know, in the clinical sense, we're like, you're above 140 somewhere. And if, you know, on the first time they measure it is 145 and the second time is 137, you're like, that's about the same. You know, it's really hard. So when someone tells me that this 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 change led to 0.2 millimeters in mercury, I'm like, that's like nothing. Now, you could say at a population level, it all adds up. But I'm also like, at this point, I'm like, that is really effectively nothing. 
That is nothing. It's, that is really no small. difference. It's small. That is such a small difference that I cannot... I cannot believe it makes any difference. So I, I was like, yeah, okay, it kind of goes in the direction I thought it did, but the magnitude was so surprisingly small that I'm sort of like, huh, I, I would have figured that, that um, you know, more stress would be, have a bigger impact on blood pressure than that. The, 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 the exception was in this propensity analysis at the end where they had an odds ratio of like 1.1 or something. So a 10% increase in the odds ratio of incident hypertension if you sort of downsize to a smaller apartment. But, but even that, I was like, I don't believe it. It because Wait, I, was it if you downsized or you upsized? If you it went to a smaller apartment, when you if you downsized to a smaller apartment, your risk of incident hypertension went up. So that's what they were arguing. Oh, oh sorry, it goes up. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah, got yeah, yeah. And so you know, and it went up by ten percent, which I, I could I, I could also believe. But at the same time, you think like, well, if people are downsizing, why are they downsizing? And it's not usually because they want to live in a smaller apartment. It's usually because they're forced to economically or something else. It's like all sorts of other social stressors going on. So how could you possibly isolate the mood? Move, you know, like the living size of the new apartment per se is being the driving factor as opposed to all of the social circumstances around why people had to move. Plus, a priori, they must be older because if it's incident, that means it's later in life. And so people's blood pressure goes up as they get older. So it, it, couldn't that also just be a proxy for age? I, I mean, I, I, I found myself like scratching my head and not really believing that part of the analysis and being completely unimpressed, though believing the first part of the analysis. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a, it's a proxy for age. Per se, because you've you've adjusted for I guess age, you're controlling but, but, for that, but, but but I think the point that you make is really valid. Uh, Jess, what did what what's your what's your take on this one? What I was interested in in this study is that I just in the last couple of years have been involved in studies where they do geocoding residential addresses, and it's a huge undertaking. It's an enormously time-intensive undertaking to be able to take someone's residential address and then be able to map it and be able to kind of impose characteristics of the neighborhood using GIS, which is what they did in this study. And so the fact that that was done over the 40,000 the effort that went into producing... That was my favorite part of the study. Yes, that was, was my favorite detail. part of the study, was the detail about that exposure of of residential housing, of how your housing size affects this one particular outcome in a very dense, this is, you know, Hong Kong is a very, very dense, one of the, you know, densest places on earth in terms of population. And so, so that was really interesting to me. Methodologically. I, methodologically, that they created that database and they interfaced it with real estate, you know, with like yeah. people, how people are selling their house and information that's available, like on the equivalent of Zillow. And then they used government sources and they were, you know, kind of capturing this very detailed neighborhood level characteristic. So it was an environmental health science test like that was really of interest to me. What I what I wanted was the actual measurement of the apartment, right? Like what is there some threshold for the effect? Is it that Because you know, it's probably not linear. It's right? probably not linear. And so there's probably some some threshold where you're seeing this effect above or below some particular size in the housing. And I wanted to know what that was. And the authors didn't address that. Like what were the actual size of these units? I wanted to visualize an apartment that I had been in or lived in and kind of how many people could be in that unit before you cross this sort of threshold. And so, so that, that was not there. And I was, I was looking for it. Although I agree with you, I didn't so much focus on the changes in the diastolic or the systolic. I was just looking for the incident hypertension diagnosis. It was a lot of data that they presented. And so I was just kind of focusing on that, on that more disease state. I mean, um, but I agree that was those were small small differences. You could basically sort of say that that you know they they did a meticulous analysis that shows that the effect of of living space has a negligible impact on your blood pressure, and I, I guess I would agree with that. I mean, it, it seems to slightly adversely affect your blood pressure, but the difference Maybe. is so 
it's like clinically totally insignificant. Maybe it affects your blood pressure because it, I mean, so I, I wrote down here, this is really long abstract. There is a really long abstract, like longer than you normally it see It took me a while to realize that I was still reading the yeah. abstract. <laughs> really long abstract, massive number of p-values and way too many significant digits, right? There's, there's, there's a level of precision that is implied by these estimates that the data don't quite hold up to. The second thing I wrote down was I go into this with a really high bar for needing to be able to remove confounding because, you know, we're dealing with things that are so correlated, as you said, Chris, with with socioeconomic status and and education and social know, stressors, all kinds Life of things events. that would also potentially affect hypertension. So you you really are going to have to do that. And they, they, they had a lot of data, so I don't want to say that they, they couldn't have removed most of the confounding, but, you know, it doesn't take, it wouldn't take that much residual confounding to explain away these effects. So, you know, so they're sort of like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I'm convinced that there is much going on here. On the other hand, all these measures are really cool. I, I, I love them. I love the level of detail. On the other hand, I suspect there is a lot of Mismeasurement of some of these things, in which case you wonder, is there some, you know, biasing towards the null that's happening if there is really some effect because they're including so many of these measures that you know, I'm not totally convinced you could ever get true precision on. But lastly, the point I wanted to make was whenever I read a study like this, I I I like to think that we are moving out of the era where we just look at two different groups of people and we say, you know. We compared these two different groups on some outcome. We adjusted for a whole bunch of confounding. Therefore, we think, you know, this is causally related to this. And rather, we actually think about what is the, you know, counterfactual contrast question that we're asking. So it's living in a, a small apartment compared to what? Compared to living in a bigger apartment? So then the question immediately becomes, well, how? How, like, how are we going to get people to move in? To bigger apartments. Are we going to just go through into the city and make everyone's apartment bigger? You know, we'll just, you know, take two apartments and put them together and everyone can live in one of those and we'll build lots more houses. Are, you know, are we going to move, like when you talk about like livable space, are we going to move people from one neighborhood to another, which may actually be the move itself may be stressful. It isn't clear. So I liked the last one, the propensity score match one, we're asking a very specific question. What is the effect of moving from a smaller to a bigger or a bigger to a smaller? But as you say, Chris, then you have to deal with why. Th then your, why did your, you move? your bar for confounding goes way up yeah. because why? Why do they move? And yeah, some people are moving because they want to downsize, but other people are not. Other people but even are moving. if they're moving because they want to downsize, that's still going to be stressful. The, or, or vice versa. I mean, every be, time you move anything, you, it's like stressful. True, although it could be the opposite, right? It could be the reason you're downsizing is because... You're moving into the you know the retirement stage of life. Kids have moved on, and you know you're you have you have less. You know you're not working anymore. Who I I don't you know. You could be moving away from a stressful environment. That's that's also possible. Also true. So my point being, it's very hard to to tease out all that confounding when you're talking about small effects in the neighborhoods of ten percent. Uh, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's a high bar. All so, of this is within the range of of where you really think the residual confounding is is, is could explain everything. It's certainly possible. It's yeah. certainly possible. So I don't I don't discount their results, but I, I'm also not there yet that I would say this is a conclusive finding. Yeah. Right. I I think what what I think this study had going for it, in addition to their kind of the exposure assessment, was just the the kind of core hypothesis or the core structure that they were interested in looking at these countervailing kind of almost like public policy 
issues where there's this idea that people in the city move more. And so there's this focus on walkability and, and physical activity and that people who live in kind of dense urban areas, that there's some sort of physical and health benefit to that compared to living in a car-reliant suburb or exurb. But then the consequence of that is that some people are living in poor quality housing. And so that either means that there's housing, that there's crowding, or the housing is just of lower quality. And or so, exposure to crime. Or exposure to crime or exposure to, you know, and mold or other sorts of things that are associated with kind of you know, unpleasant, unpleasant living, living conditions. Yeah. And so I was interested that they tried to capture all of that in one study. And I think, I feel like some of the more interesting studies that we talk about on this podcast are the ones where they are using multiple study designs and varying the questions slightly to try to use these different designs to kind of paint the bigger picture of this situation. And they, they tried to do that. I mean, regardless of the fact that their results were not, you know, majorly important or kind of, you know, had this marginal effect, it was a clever sort of approach that they took, even despite some of these imperfections. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. It was, it was a, it was a really good effort. And it's, it's, I think probably moving things towards a direction where you can do more and more. I'm just, not totally convinced right. by these results, but right. I, I agree with you. I think it's it's moving in a really nice direction. All right. All right. Anthrax. What's your anniversary of Anthrax? Yeah. When did they when did they put out their last album? <laughs> Has it been twenty years? Yeah. All right. Gosh. So uh, second segment, we, we were gonna talk about a JAMA article called Twenty Years After the Anthrax Terrorist Attacks of Two Thousand One Lesson Learned and unlearned for the COVID-19 response by yeah. Lawrence Ghostin and Jennifer Nuzzo. And so the, 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 the crux of the article here is essentially, you know, in 2001, there were, after the World Trade Tower attacks in the United, New York City, seven days later, there was an anonymous letter laced with anthrax that began arriving in postal facilities, or there were several of them. So there are postal facilities, media companies, and congressional offices. The first death from inhaled anthrax exposure occurred on October 5th with an additional four deaths and 17 infections over the ensuing months. And that spurred a whole bunch of, of steps that were taken around public health preparedness. And this article goes into you know, details of a lot of the different approaches that were taken. So for example, hospitals developed emergency operations plans for a range of different scenarios. Key hospital reforms included patient surge plans, interoperable communication systems and planning for hospital evacuations. Hospitals organized into healthcare coalitions. The federal government, Department of Health and Human Services created the Office of Public Health Emergency Preparedness and so on and so on and so forth. And oh, and the National Strategic Stockpile was, was developed, which I didn't realize that had had been developed until the the anthrax attacks to distribute medicines, vaccines, and medical supplies to states in a health emergency. And then they talk about how you know this was was actually pretty successful in the the H one N one outbreak that occurred. Zika and then Ebola came along, and it was less successful, but it sort of tested our our systems. And then there was this sort of systematic deinvestment in our healthcare, public healthcare, just in system. time for COVID to arrive. Just in time. So you, so you have, you know, cutting, slashing of, of budgets to state and local health departments decreased by nearly half between 2003 and 2021. Federal funding for hospital preparedness decreased by nearly two thirds. And we end up in a, a state where everybody knew 
that there eventually was going to be a major pandemic. Maybe not necessarily of the the size that it was or or the the seriousness that it was, but everybody knew that something was coming, right? We'd been through Zika, we'd been through H1N1, we'd been through all of these different scenarios, and it was like the first first thing that that Barbara Mann told us in our my infectious disease course in 2000 and what two like we don't know when it's coming we don't know you know but it's there will be a major pandemic and it will be a respiratory pathogen they thought it was going to be influenza so it was coronavirus although Hopkins predicted that it was going to be a coronavirus so you know it's like it's not out of the and yet we systematically underinvested so the question is why yeah why well, I, I have I have three comments here, if I may. May I? Yeah. May I? Okay. Okay. So, comment number one is Cassandra. Mm. Do you remember Cassandra? Yes. Mm. Okay. So, for those of you who don't, Cassandra was a resident of the city of, of Troy. She was cursed with the ability to see the future, but the curse was that no one would ever believe what she said. So all her prophecies were ignored. And, and I've often said uh, cynically that I think Cassandra should be the patron saint of public health. <laughs> um, because here we are. And, and, and it is, the story is told over and over and over and over again. Point number one. So point number two is that we're seeing exactly the same thing with in 2008. There was this major financial meltdown due to speculation on derivatives and derivatives, right? All based on mortgage-backed securities. And so that led to all these banking reforms. And ever since then, we've seen like a stepwise nibbling away at those financial protections, including by Jerome Powell, which was one of the things that worries me a little bit about him. And 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 now we're moving, you know, galloping towards the, the bright future of Bitcoin. And I just have this feeling that Bitcoin is going to bite us, <laughs> bite us hard and lead to a financial meltdown on a global scale, that this is, an, this is another bad idea that is so difficult to explain that no one can really regulate it because nobody really knows what it is. Can I just pause you for a second here? Jess, anywhere in your notes, did you have Bitcoin in your notes? I didn't, but this is why I love sitting next to Chris. Go <laughs> on. I'm off on major tangents here. Go on, Chris. But I, but I think it's, it's, it's the same thing that is not just, you know, pandemics, but this is our behavior in general, right. is that we always respond in the moment and then our, our vigilance goes down. But if you think about, like, the immune system as being an, another sort of metaphor, analogy, or, or, you know, reference point here, the immune system has the same function, which is that... It, in the immediate exposure to an antibody uh, to, a, to a pathogen, you develop you know high titers of protective antibodies, and then over time they fade. And in the case of the immune system, it's because it is an energy intense process to maintain antibody levels at a high concentration all the time. And there's no reason to do this because a much more efficient way is to have memory B cells, which will boost. And so are we not sort of seeing the same thing that the society is kind of behaving like an immune system, that it, it, it cannot actually sustain itself at this high level of vigilance for very long before we feel like we're just spending money on nothing. But what we want to do is maintain institutional memory and the capacity to boost, except that I'm not sure that it really quite works that way. It doesn't. Because the, the boosting part of that seems to be lacking, that that we actually don't have immunologic memory. So this is where I think we deviate from the immune well, system metaphor. Well, and you can't metaphor. boost, quote-unquote, as you're saying, that quickly. Yeah, that's the problem. So I don't know. I, th- I think, I don't know, I think social psychology is our enemy on this one. And that, But it's the same problem over and over and over, is it is up and down and up and down, and our vigilance waxes and wanes, and our attention shifts from this crisis to that crisis, and we just can't maintain a constant focus on any one danger for very long. And the end result is that we, we, we get hit again and again and again, but it's usually something new. 
So, so what will it be next time if it's not another pandemic or another financial meltdown? It's like, uh, of course, global warming. That could be it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's such a mess. Maybe we want to end the podcast here and just yeah. go crawl into the sheets. We just, just go to the, well. go to the I, I, know, I was going to say, I was going to say, I, I agree with, I agree with Chris from what of it I understood. I, you know, I, I, I think that there's, there's also, you know, in addition to instant, like kind of loss of institutional memory over time. So this is a 20 year time period. They're talking about, you know, the anthrax situation was in 2001 and now we're in, you know, 2021. And, you know, that's a that's a that's a, the working life of a generation of people kind of starting, you know, a 20 year period. That's a solid chunk of, of the working life of a generation of people. And during that period of time, I mean, there's there's resource constraints. And I think as the public health world, we can draw on those resources at moments where we have to we have to convince people that it's worth it. And sometimes external events convince the war, you know, or convince the country on the behalf of the public health community that it is worth it. And other times, I think the response is mixed. Like I think the, and you know, as always, public health becomes a victim of its own success to the extent that we were able to prevent Ebola from spreading in the United States. We were able to kind of stem Zika virus from becoming a major entrenched disease in the United States, for example. The fact that the 2009 H1N1 pandemic did not blow up wasn't until so this, it wasn't that it wasn't the terrible pandemic that everyone was worried about even though it was bad but it wasn't like the end of the world sort of pandemic and and I think after those three events within a 20-year period especially within you know the last 10 years that was kind of all that we could draw on the public consciousness for resources until obviously COVID comes along and now there's this other influx of investment but you know I you'll have to see how long it sustains because there's always these competing demands on the resources. So so that's interesting because if you if you go back to Chris's metaphor of the immune system, thinking mm-hmm. of the country like an immune system, I would have thought that each of those scenarios that you just raised, Ebola and and, mm-hmm. and Zika and H1N1, which would be which like a boost. Would be like a boost mm-hmm. that we would have said, right. boy, yeah. actually, you know, this could have been a lot worse. We really ought totally to totally dodge that bullet. We ought to get prepared. And and to be fair, I mean, you know, the but it was the opposite. Right, it was the opposite. Like, like oh, this Ebola wasn't, wasn't a big so deal. Bad. This wasn't H1N1 such wasn't a so big bad. deal. Right. was no big deal. Therefore, we don't have to worry. Yeah, it right. seems it seems like it. So the question I want to ask, though, is, you know, if I I, I brought up this issue of, of counterfactual thinking in the in the last segment, so I'll bring it up again. I'm against facts as well, by the way. I know you totally are. You always have been, and I, I applaud you for it. Could how much better could things have been in the United States? So obviously, they could have been. Better. Could, could, have been better. Done, could have but, been better. But how much? Because you know, you look at other countries where things are not quite as polarized as they are here, and you know, some of them did better, but did they do dramatically better? I mean, I guess uh, how much of it was was inevitable, and how much of it could have been avoided? I know mm-hmm. a lot of it could have been avoided, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the number mm-hmm. is that I'm willing to put on it within reasonable constraints. I mean, I, I'm not like obviously, if we had all the resources in the world and, and complete control. We could we could shut this thing down completely. We could shut down the borders and, you know, somehow magically figure out how to get everybody working but not any infected. But but in I'm talking in realistic terms, how much how much better could it have been? Well, it's interesting because I think money that might have been shifted out of 
public health systems, like public health, state public health departments, potentially, you know, there was a good amount of money over this time period shifted into biomedical research, mm -hmm. which then was, you know, was, the, was, this was the resources that were addressing kind of, can we make, how do we test? What is this virus? How can we test for it? How can we test for it quickly? How can we test large groups of people even faster? How can we let people test at home? Can we make a vaccine kind of like, that the speed of being able to understand the scope of the problem and being able to diagnose people who are sick and try to prevent people from getting sick, there were a lot of resources that we had in that domain, kind of in the biomedical research side of things, that were probably drawn from the public health system in that sense. And so the limitations, you know, that we, it wasn't as if we, we had nothing, you know, it wasn't as if we were totally at zero. I think, you know, the, the, these authors are talking about how the state public health systems were kind of gutted yeah. after the 2009 H1N1 epidemic, which, you know, which, which, which seems largely accurate, but some of that money, it wasn't as if that money kind of vanished. There was a huge investment in the biomedical side over the 20 year period that then led to some of these mm -hmm. interventions that have been helpful. mRNA right. vaccines, for right. example. Right. Yeah. So, so when I think, so I mean, when I think about how things could have gone otherwise, I think about the fact that, and I do not, for the life of me, understand this. How is it that we're almost two years into this and we don't have large-scale, massive access to free or cheap home tests? Yeah. And I think, well, they they do have it in the UK and lots of lots of places, there. and and you know, then I think, but but things aren't going that much better over there either. So like part of me thinks, you know, if we just had this, things would be so much better. And then part of me thinks, uh, I don't, you know, it would have an impact. I'm sure it would have an impact. I don't know how much I can't, I can't grab, you know, wrap my head around that. So I, you know, I wish we, I wish we had done so much more. And yet I, yeah. I you know, I don't know what the range of, of plausible benefits would have been given, given, given the country that we live in and how divided it is. Yeah, you know, I think it was David Brooks in the New York Times, who mostly I disagree with, by the way, but occasionally I, I concede his points. And he, one of his points recently was that he had, he, he had for many years sort of looking at the fracturing of American society and the increased polarization in our politics and said, you know, I used to feel that like, let's imagine that, you know, there was an alien race that came to earth to destroy the you know civilization and, and turn us all into alien you know meat pies, right? <laughs> that that event would would finally lead to everyone passing casting aside their their differences and and uniting in the common good. And he said, and he basically said he's no longer believes that's true. That he thinks actually there'd be half the society that would embrace the alien invasion <laughs> and, and determine that the other half of society deserved to become meat pies. And I, I you know I I, I think. You know, here we have an interesting experiment. It's like a psychosocial global experiment of what happens when you unleash, not intentionally, I think, a novel virus that has about a 1% lethality, which is reasonable still after everything we learned about COVID that is about 1% lethal. Mm -hmm. And the answer is that it caused a global financial meltdown in the short term, but that it does not lead to unification around a common vision. It does absolutely does not do that. It leads to denialism and, and political fracturing and, 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 you know, fights in our body politic and in our actual civic discourse. And so would it be different if it was a virus that was 5% lethal or 10% lethal or like, let's suppose some crazy people dug up smallpox survivors in the permafrost in Iceland and got smallpox viruses out of them and released it in, in, you know, in some airport, leading to a release of smallpox, which is one of the most contagious diseases on earth, 
at a time when there was no natural immunity left on the planet, basically, mm-hmm. because smallpox vaccination would, ended would 40, 50 years ago. Would we unite around something that was Vaccines. 30% lethal? Yes. Or would we continue to squabble and just until the, in, the entire house of cards came no, crumbling down? I, I, what I, would I do we do? Think we would, yeah. we, 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 I think we would, would actually... the threshold where we, where we actually, the disaster and the threat of imminent you know, chaos is so great that we would actually be forced to see that this is for our own goods that we all got yeah, together. Yeah, I mean, you certainly wouldn't be hearing the things like, you know, why should to get vaccinated for a disease that has a 99.9% survival rate, right? I mean, that's, you know, I think people would would feel very differently about a, a much higher mortality rate. But it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about this, as you point out. I mean, this article is about the anthrax attacks post 9-11. I mean, that was, but I mean, I'm just thinking about 9-11. That was probably the last time I can think of it. That the country was fairly, you know, pretty, pretty united. Yeah. Um, whereas we are not in... We we're not going into this pandemic, and we and it certainly didn't unite us. It has further divided us. So I don't know. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Rupert. Yeah, really. Okay. Well, then, on that happy note, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Chris, you wanna you wanna go first this time? Yeah. So I was reading the New York Times as I want to do, and there was this headline that caught my eye that says new eye drops offer an alternative to reading glasses. And I just got new glasses. Mm. And so I was sort of like, oh, eyeglasses. Hmm, interesting. Eye drops. And this new compound is called Vuity. It's called a, it's a Vuity, V-U-I-T-I-Y, excuse me, a once a day treatment that can help users with presbyopia, that is nearsightedness without affecting their long range vision. Now, as I, I was like, oh, that's so cool. What is this new thing? It turns out this new thing is an old thing. It's a drug called pilocarpine, which has been around forever. It's actually one of the drugs that they talk about in, in pharmacology and medical school because it's one of these sort of classic compounds that you know affects the muscarinic receptors and all sorts of systems. And in the case of eye drops, when you put it on eye, it causes your pupils to constrict. Mm-hmm. So now I thought that was really cool because basically what they're doing is they're turning your eyeballs into a pinhole camera. And that's what I wanted to talk about is what is a pinhole camera? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, of course. That, that, that is exactly where I thought you were going with this. So exactly. But it this. is essentially turning your eyes into a pinhole camera. Tell um, me more about pinhole cameras. So you're all familiar with if you had a single lens reflex camera where you have to adjust the f-stop and open up the aperture uh, to, to adjust the amount of light that goes into the camera. Yep. And when you go down to the smallest f-stop, like, um, what is that? I don't remember which way it goes. I think the it's a it's an interquartile range unit. <laughs> of right. Anyway, whatever the smallest uh, f-stop is, it, it, it's a tiny little it's a tiny little hole, and you get a great depth of field. And the depth of field is how far in front or behind of the focal point will also be in focus. And the smaller the f-stop, the wider the depth of field. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you see like uh, you know an image where everything is blurry behind you, like on the you know the, the zoom, zoom background, backgrounds, right. that would be mimicking a very wide f-stop. And so the, the, the coned down small hole version is much like a pinhole camera because you get great depth of field. And if the hole is small enough that the depth of field almost becomes infinite and basically what's happening is that the beams of light are constrained through this tiny little channel that they basically can only go parallel. And so you don't need to focus at all. Everything is perfectly in focus and you have an infinite depth of field in both directions. And this was, you know, it has been exploited for hundreds and years. Like imagine you're looking at a solar eclipse but you can't look at the solar eclipse because you'll burn your retina. Instead what you do is you make a pinhole camera and you punch a hole through a piece of tin or something and then project that image onto something else and then you can see the eclipse without looking at the sun directly. And so basically what they're saying is that if you make your your you know pupils small enough, it will function like a, an infinite depth of field and now you can see 
you can see close up as well. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. But the downside, of course, is that you can't see in the dark mm -hmm. because you're not opening up your eyes to see any, to let much light in. But physically, it's the same thing. And I thought it was so... How long does it last? It lasts about eight hours, I think. Per so you can't see in the dark. So you'd have to do it in the morning. So you would not want to do this while you're doing night driving. Yeah. But if you um, come home and you want to read, you know, um, The Lancet, which has got some of the smallest <laughs> print of any of the journals that we read, mm -hmm. and I think we should stop reading The Lancet because I can't read it anymore. My eyes are not good enough. I feel like it's got to... <laughs> Or you could just reason. get some drops. <laughs> like, who are I they noticed. writing to? Like, don't they realize that most scientists are in their 50s and I can't see the, anymore? I noticed the font <laughs> you have printed there is huge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm getting there. So anyway, I thought it was it was interesting and, and, and sort of ironic because pilocarpine has been around forever mm. for treatment of glaucoma. So this is really mm. nothing new. It's just a new marketing spin on something old that the FDA gave an indication for, which seems a little bit cheesy. But anyway, they did it. So that's what I thought. It's cool. So anytime anyone brings up needing reading glasses, I am always reminded of about 10, 10, <laughs> it, was about, it was about 10 years ago that Groupons were a big thing. Yes. And at one point they were advertising Groupons for Lasix, laser eye surgery. I cannot think of a product. <laughs> or 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 something you know something you want to buy on sale that I would want to buy on sale <laughs> like surgery that is one of the few things I want to pay more for my surgery <laughs> Right? I, wanna, I, I, I I never understood that. Yeah. But this is the three of us are wearing glasses, by the yes. way. Yes. <laughs> that I think your ears are the thickest. <laughs> Mine are definitely the thickest. And they are transition reading glasses because I'm old. I'm starting to move in that direction. Like, I have a two-year-old, and I've noticed now when I hold him next to me, he's kind of blurry. And I'm like, <laughs> like, like you know, and is I'm that like, my baby? I'm like, <laughs> to hold your head a little bit further. I know you want to get snuggly, but it's getting a little blurry for old mom. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right. So this Jess. might be in our future. Uh, it's possible. Jess, what do you got for us? It causes uh, headaches, though. Yeah. I don't need I that. Don't know, I'm getting there. Anyway, I, I, I found kind of an interesting headline, an interesting article. This is from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, a group of researchers who developed a chewing gum using the ACE2 enzyme to neutralize SARS-CoV-2 in the mouth. So what they did is they took this enzyme that has been identified as being able to neutralize the virus in the body, and they grew it up in the lab and imposed it on a plant protein product that they then flavored cinnamon, and, and they made it into a chewing gum. Oh, cool. And so the idea was that you could kind of munch on this gum, and it would neutralize the, the you know, the coronavirus. Sorry, the coronavirus that was in your mouth. Does it work? And it seems to work, at least in, they did some lab testing where they took people's saliva who had COVID, and then they took people's saliva who didn't have COVID, and they kind of mushed it up with the gum, and it seems to work. And so they're moving on to do like a, a clinical trial now on How this cool. chewing gum. The idea, I mean, the idea that people could potentially be, in fact, I mean, we know they're infect, infected and infectious without having symptoms, and maybe there could be a targeting, a targeted use of, you know, kind of killing the virus in your mouth, and maybe it has some effect on you know other virus that might be living in you know your respiratory you know, pathways and wow. things of that sort. So we've, we've gotten to this point where we're making, you know, coronavirus killing gum. Can they, <laughs> could, they, I mean, could they make a donut? 
<laughs> that's what I'm really looking for. Coronavirus killing donut. Right, right. Maybe they can infuse it into cannabis oil. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, the interesting factor is like it, it doesn't seem like it's going to last very long. Like no. it, you know, the kind you have of to chew all day. You have to chew all day or chew a lot. And like you don't, you know, it's kind of like you wear a mask in a public place to, you know, you're coming in wearing a mask and you're chewing, and so it's just kind of like munch when you're sitting in class and everyone's like. <laughs> so I, 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 the practicality of it, I'm not exactly sure, but it's kind of a, an interesting, you know, application of coronavirus science. I like right it. Now. I love the concept. Yeah. I like it. Yep. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work, Stay but I like, I like the idea. Stay tuned for the clinical trial. All right. Well, I have a quiz for you all. This is a, a quiz that's been going around. Well, it's not a quiz, but it has been going around the, the interwebs. Is this which a I, paradox? I finally, no, it's oh. a quiz. Okay. What's a paradox? Paradoxical quiz. Quiz. Okay. I couldn't find the the source for this, so I tried to verify that this is actually legit before I put it out into the world. It may not be, but I at least could verify some of these things were were correct. But the the quiz is the following. I give you a list of ingredients, and you need to tell me, is this chocolate, toothpaste, wine, or vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I will, I will give you, I'll give you the first one. Ammonium phosphate. Aluminosilicates, ascorbic acid, copper sulfate, poly polyoxythene forty, etc., etc., etc. Which one is that? I think that's vaccine. Toothpaste. That is wine. <laughs> oh wow! Oh no! Great. All right, fail. <laughs> Double Both fail. Both of us. Both of us. Right. Histidine, histidine hoxychloride, monohydrate, sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, hexadrate, disodium ed. Ditch, blah, 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 something, sucrose, ethanol, absolute, polysorbate, 80, and water. I think that's toothpaste. I go for toothpaste. That is, in fact, toothpaste. <laughs> yes. No, it's not. Sorry, I got that one wrong. What is it? Might Sorry, be. you said toothpaste? No, that no. is vaccine. <laughs> no, We're flailing here. All right, last one. Uh. Last one I'll give you. I can't even read this. N- Archidinoethylenalamine C7H8A. N402 beta phenyl. Could you say that number, that, that equation again? <laughs> <laughs> no. C7H8N402 2 phenyl ethyl ethylamine tetrahydro beta carboline epicatechin and tryptophan. Uh, is fluoride in that? No. It's not toothpaste? Nope. Oh. Chocolate. Chocolate. Oh, well done. <laughs> Only yep. the tryptophan. Right? Oh, <laughs> that was the giveaway. Oh. That was the giveaway. I was thinking they didn't put that in the vaccine. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Would, it, it would make, increase uptake. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like, there's something to like about yeah, that. Yeah. So I can't verify that that is totally legit, but I looked up some of the ingredients and they do appear to be associated with those products. So mm. I thought that was a, that was, it, it was a fun one. I presume that, I love that somebody put out there to make the point that just because there's scary ingredients doesn't necessarily make it something you wouldn't consume. Mm. Anyway, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHillDX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Donna at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode.